Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, Dev, what's going on? What's going on? Your week, man? Uh, my week has been pretty good. It was filled with family as I was in Houston last week um, and did a little writing, did a lot of like home cooking and eating. Uh, but now I'm back to Illinois. That's good. That's good. You know, um, and, and for our listeners, uh, we're recording this intro a, a bit earlier than normal. So we're not going to cover old Lord news uh, for the simple fact that, you know, people are traveling, doing a lot of things. And so we can't get the usual time that we like to record. So sorry, no old Lord news this week. But, you know, we'll try to talk about a little bit of something, something yeah. uh, before we get to today's topic and episode with, with our guest. Yeah, talk about some recent news that might be pertinent to the debates that are coming up. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with that being said, you know, this episode airs on a Wednesday. The debates happened the night before. So naturally, we're not going to have our feedback or thoughts on it yet. So that'll come at a later date. But, you know, looking at some of the things that are occurring before the debate, we saw one of the first things that Daphne and I were kind of just talking about was that, you know, the last debate had 10 folks. And now this debate has 12. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like Gabbard has uh, qualified to participate, Tulsi Gabbard, and uh, this, Cal- this California billionaire <laughs> uh, named Tom Steyer, who I'm like, where did this guy even come from? <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, have been added to the pack as well. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, I doubt they'll probably get a lot of time. I don't yeah. know. I don't even know who guys are. Are you happy more people are at? Like, so for instance, there's there's been this argument that oh, they're cutting candidates off too soon. Like people are being disqualified too soon. Uh, The voters need to hear from these people. Like, are you, do you want to keep hearing from more people? No, I'm I'm good with the the group that we have. Uh, I don't see anybody else, especially somebody new coming on and blowing us away. I think that's a, you know, a long shot by far. Um, Yeah. So I think there's people that we I would like to hear more of that are already on the stage, like Castro and others, maybe. Maybe just Castro, for sure. You know, I kind of know what Booker and them are about and Harris. Um, but I think, you know, Castro is, is interesting. I don't know. Like I said, O'Rourke, Buddha Judge, all, we got an interesting cast of folks as is. So I don't think adding like this Tom guy <laughs> who is a California billionaire. He said he announced his campaign in July. Um, it seems that his claim to fame was kind of, uh, I think, during the Obama administration, it sounds like, um, mm. when he uh, gained national prominence by supporting a campaign to get the Obama administration to block the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. Mm. Mm. So he seems like a guy that's pretty, and, and his business, Next Gen Climate in 2013, is his nonprofit group. He's worth like $1.6 billion. Um, so he seems like he's kind of environmental oriented, you know, climate mm. change kind of guy. Yeah. 
Hmm, interesting. But it seems like Tulsi, at least while we're seeing this, is kicking up a little dust uh, talking about boycotting. And it'll be interesting for us talking about this beforehand to see if she actually does it. But I don't know. I'm starting to get plant vibes from uh, <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard, like for real. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I mean, it's not too far-fetched because she does come from a conservative background, was very conservative in her politics before, and came out of nowhere with this very progressive, not her being progressive, but competing with a bunch of progressives. And now if you start putting out this, you know, trying to put out this rift to say it's 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 rigged. It's rigged, yeah. What we seen last time around, that's not what we want to hear this time. Um, yeah. Uh, so I don't know what her... Uh, Motive. motive is at this moment yeah but i think uh, i think it is safe to you know raise our eyebrows and be a little careful moving forward with gabbard at this point what's crazy is so there were polls in her own congressional district um warren is leading the pack like she's not even in first place she's like um so warren got like uh 25 of the voter share in gabbard's district um biden got 22 percent and then she comes and she's tied with Bernie Sanders at 13%. That's not very, um, you know, not a lot of confidence is being placed in you when your own voters, you like tie for like third or fourth in your own district. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's not a good look at all. That's not a good look at all. I think uh, that's not a good sign. And if you, if you can't win in your own district, then... Uh, I don't know how the entire country is going to put their faith in you. Yeah. And now you coming up here screaming, you know. It's rigged. It's rigged. It's rigged. No, I don't think so. I think you might just not be someone that people want to vote for at what's, this point in time. What's also interesting is that in the poll, they also polled um, people who supported Trump. And she actually won that poll of um Voters who supported Trump in 2016, 26% said that they would vote for her over the other Democratic candidates. And the next closest was at like 15%, and that was Biden. So it was just kind of like conservatives like her. Yeah, see, see. <laughs> uh, something fishy about this one. Something fishy about this one. You got your eyes on the like, mm. is she like the Takashi 6ix9ine of. Of the Democratic candidates, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> a lot of people. This conversation now talking about people thinking he was a plant as well um, mm. for the feds because of what he's doing and him not him saying he doesn't want witness protection and all this kind of stuff, uh, which is like ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, ridiculous. Um, all right, so yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll keep our eyes on the debates. I'll definitely be tuning in. A night of 12, uh, still a lot. Um, I think when we get down to eight, I'll feel better. You know, yeah. that's, a, that's a good number for me. Because um, then you can just have people have a lot more time and, and these debates be like three, four hours. Like, she's like, come on now. Who do you want your eight to be? Who are your eight? Um, I think my eight would be, um, let me see. Let me look at the list. All right, so my eight, uh, I would definitely say, Elizabeth, I'll keep Bernie up there. Um, Castro, Buddha Judge, Booker, 
Harris, and <laughs> uh, I guess I mean that really, you know, Biden. I'm I'm kind of over Biden, so I'm not even like uh, impressed to see him up there. But if I had to say seventh, that would be Biden, and then O'Rourke. I don't know, but it'll be it'll be. A, I'll just flip a coin for O'Rourke and Yang. You know, mm. just because Yang is just entertaining to me. You know, I, mean? I don't take him serious, <laughs> really. But he's kind of fun just to watch, to see him, what he's going to do, what kind of gimmick he's going to do next when he's up on that stage. Kind of just like, you know, the non-politician, if you will. Yeah, stage. yeah. You know what? I don't even know if I have an eight. I'm looking through this list. <laughs> I mean, it, was, like, it was I'm a like, stretch. Yeah, it's like, I could hear from them, but... There's a lot of people that I just don't think have a chance. Now, I guess if they were the candidate and people had no other choice. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry I made you do that exercise because I don't <laughs> <have> it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, really, at the end of the day, if, if it was like a final four, I probably just right now thinking it'd probably be just to see it duke it out, just to see Castro, Warren, Harris, and, and maybe... Maybe Sanders, you know, I feel like the top of the line folks um, really to see like who can be, dis- you know, distinguish themselves from each other and really get on top. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I don't know. We have no idea who. I mean, it seems like Biden, Warren and and uh, Sanders, Sanders will definitely make the final, you know, three, yeah. if that. And, and who's behind him? Harris, is it? Um, you know what? I have to look at the latest polls. What I what I do know, though, is um, is it like people are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Warren has gone. I mean, Harris has gone down. It seems like Warren is taking some of Harris's um, supporters. Mm, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Uh, yeah. Actually, I, I wonder I wonder if. This next debate, well, the debate that came on last night, I'll be interested to see if Harris is going to start maybe taking more jab, direct jabs at Warren mm. you know, to try to gather some of those votes back. Uh, but yeah, everybody, I mean, the talk of the town has been, you know, how how much Joe Biden has dropped in his, like 10% or something like that almost. Yeah, he's been polling. falling. Yep. I mean, I think which we've predicted here on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Comes to no surprise. Um, but yeah, all right, that's interesting. All right, so yeah, we'll keep our eyes on that. And, you know, in the next week or two, if not next week, then the week after when it's just Daph and I talking, we'll definitely do a deeper dive on what's been going on from the debate and, and all the, the hot topics of the month for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, you know, we got a guest today who was very relevant to this idea of politics, right, in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, and uh, Tequila Johnson, who is an award-winning community organizer and strategist, and pretty much her work focuses on creating equality and increasing civic engagement among Black Americans, really mm-hmm. getting Black folks out there to vote, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is amazing. Um, so yeah. it was a great conversation. We're really glad to get her on to yeah. chat with us. Yeah. And one of the things I love about uh, Tequila and her work is that, you know, she's out in the community. She's registering people. She's, you know, doing that work, but also pushing back against systems that are trying to suppress uh, the votes, um, because there are a lot of states, um, a lot of state legislatures that are 
finding ways to penalize people who are trying to rock the vote. Yeah, they are. All these things with gerrymandering, which you talked about before, and all these different tactics and that, that we'll talk about also through the interview, um, how, yeah, she's working really hard to just push back against the systems and the strategies they use and, and, and just her passion. You hear it throughout the entire interview of like, mm-hmm. this is something that she really, really cares about and is doing a lot of the um, groundwork. And it's just like, it's just cool to see. And, and it, you know, it's rare, not rare, but we don't, you know, having somebody on that's just really doing that community work and not fully in this academic space like ourselves. It's mm-hmm. good to hear from her. Because it takes both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes both for us to get that progress. And so she's definitely a good example of that. Um, all right. So, yeah, without further ado, let's talk to Tequila and, uh, you know, we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Since the 2013 Shelby v. Holder Supreme Court decision, which struck down key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, we've witnessed a rise in voter suppression efforts across the United States. However, grassroots organizations across the country are fighting back and finding innovative ways to mobilize the black and brown vote. Today, we are joined by an award-winning community organizer, Tequila Johnson, who helped register nearly 100,000 voters in Tennessee as the co-founder of the Equity Alliance and the statewide manager of the Tennessee Black Voter Project. During our conversation, we discussed the power of grassroots organizing, as well as the challenges that activists face as they fight for equity. Also, we have a conversation about voter suppression, gerrymandering, and ways that everyday people can join the movement to empower people of color through voting. Welcome to Quila. Yeah, very excited to have you. Um, So we always start these interviews out by just trying to get to know you a little bit more, introducing you to our audience. So can you tell us about yourself and how you got started in grassroots organizing? Sure. So, um, like Daphne, Daphne said, my name is Tequila Johnson. I am um, from Chattanooga, Tennessee, born and raised. I moved to Nashville in 2004 to um, attend college. I went to Tennessee State University. In the process of um, college, I met a lot of people, gained a lot of knowledge, met a lot of friends. One of those friends ended up being partially part of the reason why I got into this organizing space. Um, Christian Bugs, who one of my sorority sisters, my former roommate, um, decided that after just being very dissatisfied with the way things were going in her professional career as a teacher, that she wanted to have more of a impact on how schools were governed in Nashville, decided to run for school board. So as she started her campaign, we were all excited and we were like, yay, this is a good thing. We're going to help you. We had never worked on a political campaign before, but we decided to roll up our sleeves and teach ourselves about the process. In the process of doing that, we learned how um, certain voters are targeted for a GLTV or what's called get out the vote. And that's like the crucial period a week or two before the election where you literally try to get as many people to the polls as possible. So we were looking at this map and there were all these little dots on the map. And there was this one group of dots that had more dots than anywhere else on the map. But throughout the entire campaign, our political strategists told us that we should avoid that area. And so we learned that the reason for avoiding that area was because those people were li- were not likely to vote and that if we targeted them, we may not or we may or may not get a good return on our investment. 
So we just really were, were bothered by that when we learned that that was the housing projects here and that more people lived in those housing projects than in the entire district. And yet those people were not voting. So that really raised our eyebrows. We started going, digging deeper into the statistics around voter participation in the country for black people, and specifically in the state of Tennessee. We learned that Tennessee at that time was 50th in voter turnout and 45th in voter registration. So we were very disturbed by the fact that our state was not actively participating in the democracy the way that we should. And once we started going down the rabbit hole, as you guys probably know, it gets deeper and it gets darker. But by the time you get down there, you look up and you realize, okay, I've gone too far to crawl out, so I'm going to keep digging. And every year, every day, every hour, every second, I learn something new. I uncover something new. I find another issue that needs a solution that is inequitably targeting communities of color. And so I, since 2017, just have literally poured myself into this work. And we've made a lot of really good gains, but there's still many to come. For the most part, that's really how we got started. Of course, there were so many other things that happened that really, really fueled our passion around this work. But that was the main purpose for getting involved. Nice. And, you know, I guess taking it a step further, you mentioned that you guys had a lot of gains. So I guess tell us about some of the specific work you've done and the victories you've had uh, when organizing in Tennessee, maybe around voting or police oversight board and things along those lines. Yeah, so... That election um, that I talked about and a little bit of information about the Nashville school board election is highly contested. As you guys know, Tennessee just passed the the vouchers bill, one of the first states to pass that. So education here is a really big deal. Um, in, a, in a normal school board election, you probably have to raise anywhere from fifteen dollars to $30,000. Well, in Nashville, you have to raise up to $80,000 to run for school board. So here we are, these young African-American women never worked on a political campaign, no political capital, and we were able to strategically get 60% of the votes. So we did really good with that election, and that really showed us our power, and we transitioned that power from being not just focused on elections, but focused on community organizing and power building. And in the process of that, we registered, um, I led last year in 2018, I led the Tennessee Black Voter Project, where we were able to register 91,000 black people to vote across the state. Um, That was probably one of our biggest successes. But since then, we've been able to increase turnout in very low turnout areas. We've done a lot of strategic digital marketing. We've done a lot of strategic outreach, field outreach, you name it. We call ourselves the unconventional community organizers because we believe in going where the people are. And we believe that our work should be engulfed or enriched with the black culture just to make sure that it is fun and it is exciting and it it, is steeped in what we as African-Americans like. And that's those intrinsic soulful feelings that really push us and energize us. So we've had lots of successes. I'm I'm trying to think of more that I can speak to, but we've we've, we've done these voter outreach parties and in every district where we've had these parties, turnout has doubled. Um, We've done about eight of those. We've had over 100 events. We've organized in churches. Um, 
we launched our Souls on the Rose campaign, which we were able to go to 82 black churches across the state. In a month, we were able to register 30,000 people to vote. We also built a very extensive list of African-Americans across the state throughout that organizing. So we've done some really, really big things over the last two, three years. And um, so for full transparency, Tequila and I are both from Chattanooga. We grew up together. Um, and so I followed some of your work. And I know those wins came with some challenges and that it wasn't an easy road. So can you talk to us about some of the obstacles that you faced as you were getting, you know, 30,000 uh, voters registered across 82 churches and, 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 you know, the police oversight board, like what were some of the obstacles you faced? Yeah, so um, we did not work directly on the oversight referendum. However, we were on the ground really working on turnout, knocking on doors, making sure people were informed on what was happening. So all of those things kind of go, go hand in hand. I would say the biggest obstacle that we face as a Black-led organization is resources. Um, we are a 100% volunteer-led organization. We have 32 volunteers that serve essentially as staff. I mean, anything from organizers to graphic designers, all the way down to um, we have accountants and we even have an admin assistant that does all of our scheduling for us. So we really struggle with those resources in terms of time, talent, and let's be real, money. It takes a significant amount of money to move people to the polls. In fact, Pew Charitable Trust launched a research project a few years back that said it takes $25 a touch to reach a voter, and it takes at least four touches to pull your average voter out. And I can tell you the numbers that the numbers of people we've been able to pull out and the resources we've had don't add up. Now, we have been more resourced than your average Black-led organizations just starting out because of the intentional relationship building we've done, but there's also a significant gap in how Black-led organizations are resourced. Um, I want to say 98% of all funding that is designated to go to work in communities of color goes to organizations led by people that aren't people of color. So that right there is a huge inequity. When you talk about just doing this work, we haven't seen a lot of gains in this area because the intentional relationship building piece has not been well resourced. People are resourcing white-led organizations to come in Black communities and do outreach. So it, it, that's probably the biggest challenge. The other challenge is just really the gap of knowledge. There is a lack of uh, civic education in black communities. I mean, we all took civic courses or American government in high school, but that only talks to you about how government is structured. Doesn't really teach you the game. Doesn't really teach you how to list build, how to organize, how to work van and boat builder and how to, you know, register a voter or how redistricting works or redlining or all those things that have traditionally kept African-Americans from actively participating. We really aren't privy to that. We really aren't engaged in that or really knowledgeable of that unless we take an active, active um, role in self-educating. And that right there is probably the biggest issue and the biggest challenge when you talk about getting people engaged and getting them to the polls or any type of civic work. It's just a lack of knowledge and education around the system and the processes within the system. 
And one other thing that I wanted to follow up about is because over, I guess it was the last six months or so, I also saw that um, there were like Tennessee laws. I don't know if they've been enacted, but at least proposed around um, rules for registering voters by organizations. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was a mess. Um, So in response to the Tennessee Black Voter Project, where we registered those 91,000 black people to vote, our state came back with a law. Well, they proposed a bill that is scheduled to go into effect in October. Um, There are some lawsuits against that bill, but that bill essentially would assess criminal and civic civil penalties for and criminal and civil penalties for registering voters. Um, When the bill was first proposed, it was just this crazy over-the-top aggressive approach to how do we monitor voter registration because we know there's this word that is being thrown around this uh, election fraud which by the way we have not had one case of election fraud in Tennessee Um, but that has been the response to getting more black people engaged in the process. Uh, one of the one of the worst things about that is I told you one of the hardest parts about a black led organization is resources. That bill would essentially assess up to ten thousand dollar fines for any organization that does voter registration and has forms with errors. The other piece is you can be charged with a class A misdemeanor, which holds the same weight as simple assault for registering a voter and having errors on a form. Um, we since then did a record open records request from the state to look at what are the numbers of errors on forms in the state. What we learned was the Tennessee Black Voter Project submitted less errors than we've had in previous years. Yes, we did submit more forms than we've seen, but in terms of error rate, the state always has a 50-60% error rate on forms. So it's just one of those things where it is modern day suppression It is underlining racism. It is a way to continuously suppress black voters and make sure we keep black voters away from the poll. Yeah, you know, um, I want to take it a little bit back because, like you said, you mentioned that black led organizations have a tough time with resources. But then you also talked about trying to get, you know, voters and maybe black voters to the polls and how sometimes one of the biggest issues has to do with education, like civics and really just understanding how the process works. So I guess my question is when you approach, say, black folks who maybe not be super involved with voting and and polls and in the system, and, you know, you might face some resistance, whether it may, I'm not sure exactly what they say. Maybe you can tell us that too, but like whatever the resistance is or what are the common things they say, the reasons why they don't vote and then your approach as far as how you might try to convince them to vote or to be active in this process. So, when I, you know, it's, it's crazy that you ask that and Daphne, with Daphne being on the phone and us growing up together. Um, one of the things that really, I think, sets me aside from any other strategist or organizer or your average strategist or organizer is that I've actually lived in those areas where people who aren't likely to vote 
live, work, and play. So I understand from a personal level what it's like to be in an area where you're marginalized, where people aren't coming to talk to you or build relationships with you or ask you what you want, but they're simply coming out two days or a week before election saying we need you to get to the polls. And what happens is those people go out and vote, yet they don't see any change in their communities. And so what that does is it creates this extreme voter apathy where people who are literally at the, the, the mercies or at the, the, the bottom of what I like to say political consideration um, just aren't participating. And, and it's understandable why they aren't participating. One of the things that I do is I approach this like I would any other relationship. Um, and this is an analogy that I use with people. It is really simple, but it's, it's, it's honest is you don't go into a relationship, a romantic relationship with going from meeting that person to home run. You court them, right? You go first base, second base, third base. But what happens is the black community has not been courted. We have not had an opportunity to voice what it is we want. What we have are people who have deemed themselves as experts deciding what works best for poor communities. And then they come in and tell us what we need as a community and expect for us to rally around it. And when we don't, we're shamed or we're told we're the reason why things aren't going the way that they should be for our communities or we're told to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. I don't do that. I meet people where they are. I believe you have to put the medicine in the milk sometimes. If all a person can understand is what they see, then I find what those points of interest are and I figure out how to engulf or engage them in the civic process through that. For example, the Community Oversight Board. We know that a lot of people, African-American people, are experiencing this this uprising against police and policing and over-policing. So helping them to see policing as not just this big overarching big big overarching issue, but as a symptom of other issues, it really helps them to see how politics plays into some of those things. Marijuana reform. We know that that's something that a lot of people care about. How do we get them to see how policies actually govern these systems that have kept us out of certain things or have harmed us or whatever the issues may be? So that takes a lot of intentional relationship building. For the most part, when I look at organizations in this space and I see who the organizers are, I'm like, and I'm just going to be very transparent. I see a lot of people who, you know, went to college, took three, four Africana studies classes, decided and realized that, oh, wow, I'm black. I just have never lived the black experience. They change everything about themselves, put on a few African garb, and then they go to the hood and they want to tell people who've been black their whole life how to be black. And that is the biggest issue because people who live in the hood, people who grew up in low income areas, we've been black our whole lives. We know how to be black. What we need are solutions that are attached to our already existing blackness. And so that's what I do. I don't go in the hood with my college or college educated organizers. I go in the hood and say, who is OG on the block? Who is grandmama that everybody come by her house every Sunday? Who is the person that can reach the most people? I find that person. I train that person. I educate that person. And I let that person be the spokesperson for the people that they already know. And that's not that's not what's happening in organizing right now around civics and politics for black people.
it's just not what it looks like. Wow. So many sound bites right there. Wow. I know exactly also what you're talking about. First of all, I want to say I love the medicine and the milk. I might use that. And second, I understand your frustration because I feel the same way sometimes in academia and sometimes who like are the voice for the people. And it's just kind of like, you know, we can read all we want, but nothing can um, nothing is better than actually experience. And I feel like we need to make sure that we have the voices of the people who are from the community, just as in the public, as those who have all the credentials and the coursework and the, the titles and the degrees. So, yeah, very good. So um, you also mentioned redistricting, and it made me think about the recent Supreme Court decision on gerrymandering. Um, And for those of you who don't know, um, I think it was a month or or early summer, um, the court decided in a 5-4 decision along conservative, liberal, ideological lines that partisan redistricting is a political question and that extreme gerrymandering um, isn't something that they would take up as a like a constitutional issue. So it's like the courts won't decide this. This is something um, that voters should decide. And so I wanted you to just talk about, can you talk a little bit more about what gender gerrymandering is and what you think of that Supreme Court decision? Yeah, so it's, it's all so long game strategy, which is something that, again, like I said, most low income black, you're what they consider your new American majority. And that's millennial, low income, single mom between 1835. That's something that we don't have a privilege of really doing because we're just really trying to build. We're, we're, we're on this, we're running this rat race. And by the time you slow down, the people who are trying to keep you keep their hand on you or keep their foot on you have already planned out the next hundred years. And that's what I think about gerrymandering. I think about gerrymandering less than just which gerrymandering we know is political part, not just parties, but political legislators. And it started in 1967 have the opportunity to draw the lines for districts. So what is happening is in states like Tennessee, where you have a highly Republican conservative electorate, they are, of course, redistricting the lines based off of who they know will vote for them. So they're not going to mix it up and have 50, 60, 40, 40, 40, 60, um, 80, 20 or whatever in terms of Democrat, Republican, because they want to retain power. So what you see is legislators coming together, really drawing the lines to keep as many districts in favor of their party as possible. And it's not, it's really not, gerrymandering isn't just a partisan issue because when Democrats were in control and they drew the lines, they did the same thing. That doesn't make it right. It's not about Democrat or Republican. It's more about how do we make sure that the democracy is what it's supposed to be and that is inclusive for everyone to have an active and participating role. And that Supreme Court justice decision, while a part of me like was like, okay, this is a relief because they could have easily said we're going to pass a pass something that makes it okay to do that. They said we're going to stay out of it and let the states decide. But what we know is states like Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama 
your traditionally racist white states are going to be gerrymandered down to the T. We, it's going to be hard for us to have equal um, legislative representation in terms of partisan because we know that they're going to draw it so that the majority of those districts will be ones that historically voted a particular way. In Tennessee, if you look at the numbers of people in those Democratic districts, like Nashville, Memphis, for example, versus the number of people in those other state Senate and House districts that are conservative, you will see that there are more people in these three or four Democratic districts than there are across all of those state, those smaller rural counties put together. Yet those rural counties are electing senators and state legislators with 100, 200 votes. And these people are coming to the House and the Senate floor, making decisions on vouchers, abortion bans, you name it, that affects the entire state. So numerically, there's an imbalance, and that is what redistricting does. Think about 1967. What what is pivotal about that year? That's around the time the Civil Rights Act was passed. That's around the time Black people started voting. And so when you think about that, it's like all of this is intentional to get us to this point where we are today. Mm. Talking about today um, and uh, this current political climate, and what's been going on with the, you know, upcoming presidential election, you know, the Democratic hopefuls, there's been, um, you know, a a good amount of them. So I guess now that we have you on, uh, you know, what are your, you know, your general thoughts about the 2020 Democratic candidates thus far? And kind of what do you think about, or what have you thought about the the couple of debates that have already taken place? You know, I... I watch the debates because of what my role and what I'm doing, but those things are kind of triggering for me in a sense, because a lot of times when I hear presidential candidates talk about stuff, I know that they can't, they don't have the autonomy to make those decisions. So it's almost like high level gaslighting, entertainment, so to speak. You cannot, as a president, your role is not to determine or to decide on reparations or to decide on this by yourself solely. A lot of that is going to have to go have to go through Congress. So a lot of my intention around these debates has been making sure people are aware and knowledgeable of the system and the processes. So when I say that, I think about like, even if we were to elect another Barack Obama, that Barack Obama is still not going to be able to pass universal health care if Congress does not, if it doesn't pass through Congress, the House and the Senate. Like, it's not going to happen. So a lot of what I think about these debates is I feel like people are speaking to issues that they know people care about, but I haven't heard one candidate speak truth to what they would be able to accomplish as a president. Um, I think the Democratic Party has done a piss poor job at keeping millennials, African-Americans, like I said, that new American majority population engaged. I think that they over overthink things. I think this presidential um, this primary election is going to be a complete shit show. I think you have people from all different areas saying things that they know are exciting to people, but I don't think anybody is speaking truth to power. I don't think anybody is activating or engaging the community. In fact, I think more people 
are paying attention to Trump versus the Democratic primary candidates. And I think that they're creating another role to victory for Trump. I agree. And it's it's kind of scary. And I like that you highlighted the fact that, you know, a lot of the issues that candidates or uh, proposals that candidates have is not something they can do alone. So in considering that, I guess if you're talking to potential voters, if you're talking, you're educating them about how to understand these debates, you know, what would you tell them to look for in a candidate um, in terms of they're proposing all of these things, but a president can't do this alone. So what qualities should they be looking for beyond, you know, these high level proposals that may or may not be realistic? So one of the things that I always highlight to people is running for office. Like I have no desire to run for office. And most of the time, people who do run for office have a significant amount of ego. It takes some ego to put yourself on a platform in front of the world. I think the best candidates are the ones that have you have to convince to run. And so what I tell people to look for is look at that person, look at their track record. What have they done that is in alignment with what you believe? The biggest thing I tell people is understand what that role or that position does, what they have access to in terms of resources and legislation. Nothing else matters. We can we can go down a rabbit hole about issues and all of that stuff. But unless you see equitable resources, landmark legislation is not a successful movement. And so I tell people, what have what has that person done in the past? Research that person. What have they done in the past that is in alignment with what it is you care about? Because that will tell you a lot about how they will govern when they get in office. If that person has passed legislation in previous offices that you don't agree with, don't look at what they're saying now. Watch their feet. Don't watch their mouth. Watch their feet. If they've passed stuff in the past that you don't agree with, nine times out of ten, they're going to pass stuff that you don't agree with now because this person is a seasoned politician. They're playing the game. The other thing I tell people to do is know what it is you want. A lot of times we go to these people or we're in these forums or we're listening to these debates and we don't even know what it is that we want. We don't even have an agenda. If somebody were to come to us today and say, what are the three things that black people want? What are the three things that I can produce to help the black community? Could we could we give them three things that we are all in alignment on? I don't think so. Like we have. Too many people all over the place. We have so many issues that we're not getting down to the meat and potatoes of what it is we need as a community. And these presidential candidates, they are speaking to some of it, but are they speaking to the systemic overarching needs of African-Americans? I don't really think so. I think that they're speaking to what they know is going to pull on heartstrings or what they know is going to get some sort of intrinsic response. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's important. I think, um, you know, for our listeners, because we may have listeners on, which I'm sure that you've inspired, right, to get more active um, and more involved in their local communities as far as getting being engaged and active in the civic process. So what would be, I guess, some of your advice of on how people can get started, you know, regarding to organizing? Are there particular resources? Are there things they should focus on more than others? Just general advice. So, you know, for the person who've never done before and they want to get their feet wet. 
So the first thing I would say is make sure you vote in every election, especially in your local elections, because those impact you more than just the president. So that would be my first thing. But I would also say, aside from just voting, because voting is the entry point to civic engagement. It is not the totality of being civic engaged, civically engaged or your civic responsibility. I would say volunteer for a campaign, a local campaign, school board, council, mayor, whatever. If there's a campaign going on in your state, volunteer, because what that does is it puts you in a circle or in a community of people who are already civically engaged that can give you access and that can share knowledge with you about what's happening locally in your local area. So that would be one thing. The biggest thing I would say is read. I know that's hard because a lot of times we don't have time and a lot of times we don't like to read, but that is the best way to become more knowledgeable about the processes that kind of guide the system is reading Um, and not just reading the articles on Facebook or reading the tagline of an article on Facebook. You're actually going to have to pick up some books and read a couple of books about the process and about a lot of the underlying issues. Um, The other thing I would say is just talk to your neighbors. Talk to your neighbors. Pay attention to what's going on in your county. A lot of times, a lot of the presidential elections are fueled by what's happening in our on our state and local levels. So that would be probably my biggest and easiest, most low-hanging fruit advice. It's just jump head first. Politicians aren't that smart. Some of them are really smart, but a lot of them are just puppets. A lot of them are just in a seat because someone knew that they could control that seat. So they they find somebody who has good rapport, put them in a seat, and they literally control government from the outside in. So don't feel intimidated by them. Don't feel like you can't talk to them. Set up a meeting with your council person. Ask them. You, I mean, they. you can go online to your local municipality website and literally email them their cell phone number, their home address. Everything is public because they are public officials. Set up a meeting with your council member and simply ask them, what are you doing for our district? Just jump in head first. Mm, great advice. And as a follow up, do you have any book recommendations for people to read if, you know, they really want to start engaging in the process and become knowledgeable about the issues? Yes, several books. Um, one of the first books that I read was Democracy in Chains, and it really talks about just how um, our democracy is controlled by money. Um, I read the book Dark Money that really highlights um, the Koch brothers and this whole movement around economic justice and economic reform and how that fuels policies and how that really is what is leading this whole white nationalist voter suppression movement. Um, I've also read this book called Rat Fucked, and it's about gerrymandering, redlining, redistricting, that whole narrative. Shock Doctrine is another good book. It talks about um, landlocking, how after re, re, um, Reconstruction, Black people were landlocked and how that really led to the economic demise of a whole generation of African-Americans. Um, those would probably be my first four. 
Stacey Abrams book is also really good because Stacey Abrams started off as an organizer and so leading from the outside in really helps you to see how you can make that transition from being an organizer to running for office and how to power build with little resources. So I like that book. I also read books that aren't designated or aren't traditionally what black people would read. So I read books that people who are trying to become white nationalists would read. Because I want to know, like, what are they thinking? What are their thought processes? Wow. Powerful. And also what you mentioned in uh, Stacey Abrams' book, I was just like, whoa, it's clearly for president. 2020, what, 2028? <laughs> I wouldn't want that pressure. Because uh, one of the things that I realized about politics is it's a it's a game. Like, you know, it's a game. You, you're going to pass. You're going to have to negotiate, essentially. You're going to have to give a little and get a little. And I'm just that person that don't want to give anything. I want what I want. So, you know, is is there anything else? You know, we've covered a lot and I, we have some great insights from you, which we greatly appreciate. Is there anything else um, that we didn't speak on or touch on that might be on your mind that you would like to take some time to address now? I think we pretty much touched on everything. What I will say, though, for I know you guys are. Are you both um, students at Harvard or? Oh, no, no. Uh, Daphne is. I'm a teacher at SUNY. OK. Well, good. This is in alignment. What I will say is for our African-American scholars is the, and researchers is that the movement needs you. That is a pivotal piece that is missing from the movement. Uh, when I think about how we organize in communities of color, we're not tracking. We're not building out clear clear goals and performance measures. We're not analyzing our data to where it's valid and reliable enough for us to make informed decisions. Um, we don't have a team of lawyers that are doing voter protection and election protection around our polling precincts. We're not fighting in the courts because we don't have a lot of African-American lawyers who have the resources or the time and availability to do pro bono work like that. So what happens is we end up leaning on our white allies, so to speak, to help us with a lot of that scholarly type of work that we really need. And what happens is our movements continue to be watered down. Um, not to say that there's no place for white people or allies or other people in the movement, because there is, but I really believe that the movements that have been the most successful, and we think about the movements we've seen in our lifetime, women's movement, and when I think of movements, I think of those things that result in landmark legislation and equitable resources. The women's movement, the LGBTQ movement um, is probably the most recent. When you think about the movement for black lives, it has not resulted in equitable resources or landmark legislation. And the other piece is it has been very engulfed with the LGBTQ movement, which I get it. That is OK. But I think that before you're LGBTQ plus plus or whatever, you're black. And if the movement isn't led and formed by black people, then we're constantly going to be at the at the feet of whatever other movement is being combined with our movement. And I think the biggest piece, like I said, that is missing is resources in terms of time, talent and treasure and support from our black scholars. Mm, thank you. Call to action. 
Yeah. But that was also very motivating for me because it's like, okay, how can I get involved? Um, So how can people learn more about your work, uh, invest in you and your organization, um, follow you, etc.? Yeah, so you can find all the information you like about my organization and me, my phone number, my email, and all of that is on our website at theequityalliance.org, theequityalliance.org. Um, I'm on all social media. On um, I'm on Twitter at The Solutionary, um, Facebook at Tequila Johnson, and it's T-E-Q-U-I-L-A Johnson. So you can follow me there. Um, and I'll share my information with you, Daphne, so that you can send that out to your listeners as well. I'm always open for conversations, for speaking engagements, for organizing strategy sessions. We do a ton of work. So yeah, just feel free to reach out to me. Of course. Thank you so much. This was so awesome. Thank you. And great, great podcast. Thank you all for highlighting some of these issues. Of course. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the work that you do. Mm-hmm. You in the trenches. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Real Dad, what do you think about Tequila Johnson coming in and joining us about all the work she does as grassroots and civic engagement? Yo, I'm fired up, man. I am fired up. Not just as, you know, I'm still a Tennessee voter. I'm still very invested in that. But hearing her say that academics are needed, scholars are needed in this movement, you know, is it's encouraging and it automatically it has my wheels turning to say like what can I do what can I do to help um so I'm you know really excited about the prospect of like my work being needed in spaces outside of the academy yeah I mean I can't you know I can't wait um you know I've made this strong I mean I've just always wanted to be active anyway but I think what's made it difficult for me and people like us you know just who are (laughs) in school for so long is that we're rarely you know, anchored down for a while, you know, we're moving, we're we're from this place to this school to this, whatever. And so I really never felt being at home these past few years because I've just saw every few years I'm going somewhere else. And, um, but yeah, you know, wherever, you know, getting a house soon or we get a house, hopefully within this next year or so, you know, we anchor down, then it's like, all right, I'm definitely going to be like fully engaged, involved in like, okay, who are the councilmen, you know, local politics, voting, volunteering. That's something I really want to do. And, and, you know, Tequila definitely uh, inspired me to make sure that I continue to do that and be, and be visible and accessible in those spaces and in these, in these realms, you know, of community. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that she mentioned was, you know, sometimes the best leaders are like the reluctant leaders, the one that you see the qualities and the characteristics and you're like, please do this, please, we need you. And, you know, now I kind of want to reflect on like, do I see any of those in the current lineup of like Democratic hopefuls, you know, or is it just all like a, I think the country needs me? Like who, who has, I guess that, um, leadership quality but also that like humble I guess spirit to say like I am doing this because it's it's so important um because I was kind of pushed because I need to step up um because other people see the quality in me and not just because I want to be president 
Yeah, no, it's true. And I, and I think I like the point that she mentioned also is that most of these candidates won't be able to do half the stuff they say they're going to do. Yeah. Because most of the things that, that the only way we can get a lot of stuff done is through local politics. And, you know, that's important for me, at least this, you know, moving forward is will there be politicians or any of these candidates to say, listen, I want, I want this to happen and I'm going to make sure or help, you know, local municipalities or whoever get these things done, like, is someone actually going to admit or hone on to that, right? Because like she said, a lot of it has to do with uh, miseducation in a lot of ways. They're just not being educated with, with civic matters. And uh, I feel like many people are going to believe that these presidents will be able to change the things on their block. And that's just not, you know, their role in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, when she was talking about like the qualities or what you look for. Another thing that I was considering is one who has a record of working in a bipartisan manner to get things done as much as you're like, oh, my God, the GOP. At the end of the day, if you want to get things done, you have to be able to work across the aisle. Um, and if it's something that I don't know, I just think that's an important quality. Um, and just I guess people know how to like work with people just just to get things done so that's something else i'm gonna look for in a candidate because we've talked about this before the whole time i'm like y'all got a lot of big plans but how is this actually going to happen especially if you don't control the senate (laughs) mm -hmm. and that's been my question all along and i do want to get rally you know i do want to rally behind somebody that's inspiring but like i've always said don't sell me a wall and tell me that Mexico is going to pay for it. And I don't want anybody on the Democratic side doing the equivalent of what Trump did, um, selling walls and promising that somebody else is going to pay for it. And it's just kind of like it's not to say that I do not want to see progressive reforms, but I do want to see somebody that has a record of passing progressive reforms with bipartisan support. Very true. Very true. And I think even, yeah, even think, not even thinking about the other side of the aisle, but even within the party, you know, there's disconnect between certain things and how things should be done. So it's like, you know, if someone like a Bernie gets it or whoever, it's not, he's not even getting full support from all Democrats. You know, so it'd be even easier for conservatives to shut these agendas down because you don't need all conservatives, you know what I'm saying? Or, I mean, all you don't have to worry about numbers for the most part. You just need to make sure oh, one or two Democrats will vote on our favor and we're good. Um, so I think that's even another concern is like, yeah, I think you're right. Somebody that can work, is willing to work with all parties and not being like, it's it's my way or the highway. Nobody wants that. This is not a dictatorship, regardless of which party you're on or side. You know, this is a democracy and it's going to take, um, I guess, appeasing the, the you know, the eyes of all voters on some in some way, shape, or fashion. Yeah. I'll be honest, I don't think that's where we are as a country right now. I think everybody is just like, what I want. And I I don't know. Like Tequila said, I'm a little bit worried about the outcome of the election because I don't think anybody on the left or anybody on the right is ready to have conversations about compromise and doing what's best for all. It's just kind of like my way or the highway. Mm, and so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, this this Trump. You know, one thing about Trump is that he's really showing that he, I don't know, he just does what the hell he wants. You know, mm-hmm. um, regardless of how most people feel and says what he wants, and it's just like, 
Yeah, I don't know. You would think. I know there were some people who theorized before, you know, him getting into office would be potentially a good thing because it would spark this revolution in a way. And mm-hmm. people would. <laughs> but, I, you know, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Uh, he's still in office and still doing what he wants and still destroying communities. So it's like, man, I think I think Trump, he he hasn't, you know, acted like any presidents before. But I think he also kind of set a president like if somebody really wants to do certain things that they want, they can make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know what? Know. You mentioned something, and I feel like people like to deny that this was the case now. But like I said, I I keep a tempo of like what's happening and how people are feeling through um, like online forms. And I know a lot of people lie, but I feel like it very it really is sometimes an accurate depiction of like where we're going. And I remember leading up to the 2016 election, I saw a lot of people who were so pissed about the Democratic primary that they were using language like let it burn like we need this and they saw like you said Trump as a catalyst to like burning it down so we could rebuild it and people might deny that that's the case but I do think that's another reason why you know he ended up being elected because there were some people that thought that this would hasten the revolution and it's just hastening you know destruction like destruction for only some people yeah, yeah, it's like who look look at this risk you took and I look at who's being victimized by this guy. Um and was it worth it? No way. You know, there's no way we should let this guy in office because nobody's life is worth it. You know, children's means all this stuff is just it's just not worth it. And um I think no matter how much you feel about this revolution that you thought was going to happen, it's definitely not happening. So I think people need to take a real hard look in the mirror if that was your belief uh, <laughs> going into this next election. <laughs> and let's not try to do this again, you know, at all. Mm-hmm. Got to get this guy out. But but um, no, we want to thank Tequila for coming in to talk to us about all the work she does. Very passionate about what she does and inspiring. You could just hear it in her voice and her messages and the things that she was saying. Like Daphne said during the interview, a lot of quotables to pull from and take with you as you're trying to be engaged in your own communities. So make sure you click on the links and follow all of her work. And if you can, give some support. Donate some funds to the good work. If you really can't do stuff on your own, sometimes giving money, like she said, can go a long way with black-led organizations that have so few resources in some parts. Um, other than that, follow us on social media if you haven't already. Our, our handle is at BHD Podcast. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can go to our website, blackandhollydangerous.com, to keep up with all our latest content. And then you can also email us, bhdpodcast at gmail.com for any questions, concerns, ideas, whatever it is. Um, be sure you can email us and we always are responsive to that and then you can review and rate us on itunes if you haven't did that yet that really really helps us out and then after you rate us go ahead share us with your friends share us with your family share us with your enemy and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear if you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. Worst fear.